Hello, this is Ted Brzezelski. It's time for another episode of Words and Work. Uh, this week it's Andrea Ibanez, who is a uh, Tucson-based mystery writer. Uh, her books are, uh, they all have the word deadly in them. And so the series is called The Deadly Series. Um, and this one runs pretty much up against our time limit. So I'm going to go ahead and just throw it to the interview. See you later. Okay, we have uh, Andrea Ibanez here, um, who I have actually known her for a long time. So um, if this gets overly friendly, y'all know why. <laughs> and um, she used to work for the city of Tucson. And since her retirement from the city, she's been writing mystery novels. Um, and well, as well, you've had some other stuff too as, as yes, well. Yes, that's right. right. Yes. And uh, they center around uh, a figure named uh, Sergeant Thibodeau. Thibault. Uh, Thibault. Thibault. I'm, not, I'm sorry. I just, I made him more French than he needed yes. to be. Yeah. He's been <laughs> trying Thibault. to avoid it as well. So that's yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, and uh, they take place in North Carolina, which I'm assuming that the North Carolina connection is because of your time at Duke, right? Yes, that's right. Exactly. Okay. And I loved going, being at, uh, in North Carolina. Prior to that, I had been in, uh, I grew up in New York City mm -hmm. and uh, went to school at Syracuse University, upstate New York, and could not stand the weather. But I stayed there for seven years anyway. Uh, I was in undergraduate and graduate school, and um, I just got fascinated by anthropology and went down to Duke, which has a, a primate center. Mm -hmm. And I just love North Carolina. I mean, I was, wasn't there more than four years, but I mean, it really had a huge impression on me in terms of uh, culture shock. That sounds absurd today, but it was true. Nobody could understand me. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. understand them. It was very, very Southern at the time, just starting to um, get into being the triangle, research triangle park, um, which is the area between um, Raleigh, Durham and um, uh, Chapel Hill. And, uh, but you know, once you were out of the city, you were driving by cornfields and soybeans and hams for sale and stuff like that. And it was, it was just a really, really interesting um, looking area. But you know, when you uh, were talking about fiction, yes, I really dove into it after retirement, but um, I had been writing on and off for quite some time. The uh, Tucson Weekly, I was the first cover story on for the Tucson Weekly for Doug Biggers. And I just, I really, really love doing that as well. Uh, I like trying new things is what it is. I wrote for um, Tucson Guide Quarterly, Valley Guide Quarterly. I did Fodors for Tucson and Southern Arizona. And that was the worst writing job I've ever had to do because <laughs> they made you format it as you were writing it. It was like, what? You know, this is before anybody was doing coding, <clears throat> but that's how uh, cheap Fodor's was in terms of um, uh, what they were going to be paying you. Uh, so so that, that's one of their little, uh, I, 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 are, are they tra travel guides? Is that the proper yes. word for what they do? Yeah. So they, they want, they, they basically want certain things from you and you've got. To, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. They want to know the rack rate of a hotel. And I'm like, what's a rack rate? Mm -hmm. <laughs> things like that. Yeah. But, you know, they wanted something 
cheery and scenic at the beginning, and then you had to get into the details of specific uh, uh, venues, places to see. So, you know, I was able to jam some history into it, which, I, which I'm always very interested in, um, as are you and your family. Um, and what other did I do? Oh, 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 something that actually got picked up by the New York Times, which was kind of fun. And that was about the um, uh, Harvey girls. Oh, okay. And the Harvey family. And he made so much money off of the enterprise that he had an exhibition in Phoenix. And I wrote about it and covered it for the Phoenix Valley Guide quarterly. And that's the piece that kind of got picked up by the, the New York Times, a slight rewrite of it, talking about who the Harvey girls were and how awful train travel was at that time, where some in some before they had the Harvey stations, they actually had places where they stopped and you had to pay for your meal, but oh, the meal wasn't ready before the train left the station. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> people were really hungry, disgruntled, tired, uh, terrible food. And so he put these stations up and uh, had young women who were the hostesses, the servers, <clears throat> excuse me. And they were, you know, wore these beautiful white aprons. Everything was clean and cheery and wholesome. And it also brought a lot of women out West. So, you know, it had a, it had a big change. So I, I did a lot of that kind of um, magazine freelance writing. And as you know, it's very tough to do. You, I mean, you're hustling as much as you're writing. Um, but I got to do a lot of um, some traveling, uh, locally, I did a piece on guest ranches in the area. And then I went to work for the city because I needed <laughs> a real job. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to let that lie for a while before I came um, back to fiction. So, yes, I started, um, I really jumped into it um, after I retired in 2013. And um, so they take place in uh, North Carolina. And I like not being in the present time writing because I don't have to deal with the, the cell phone thing and the, you know. Yeah, so cell phones have really kind of messed up mystery <laughs> novels, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> they I mean, have. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, Murder on the Orient Express would have been taken care of very quickly. <laughs> you know. Uh, we got the DNA. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Well, yeah. aside from the things that they do in um, modern mysteries where everything happens instantaneously, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fingerprints, DNA, facial recognition, and so on. It, it just interrupts the flow of conversation. And it's like, what? Well, who is that? Who's that calling? Yeah. You know, hard, hard to follow it sometimes. Yeah. So it, this slows the pace down a little bit. And I thought that was more uh, in keeping with the, the Southern feel I was going for. <clears throat> and then the other main character that comes in is, um, a, a woman from who's the public information officer. And in the first novel, she plays a, a role of you're not really quite sure uh, who she's standing up for. If she's standing in the way of the investigation or she has some interest in, um, in uh, Steve Thibault. So that's the, the, the tension in that book. So that one's called, got renamed Deadly Woods upon uh, advice from a lot of so, authors. So, so the, 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 the bird titles are gone. No, I love the bird titles and I love yeah. the art, but they said, no, no, no. When people are on Amazon, which is where people buy books these yeah. days, the little images of the cover comes flying by in a moment and they see the bird. And 
a couple of people said, oh, is this a young adult novel? I went, oh, no. So I knew the title and the cover were not fitting the genre, as they say. So it's Deadly Woods. And the second one is called Deadly Dunes. And you might imagine by the title, it takes place on the coast of North Mm -hmm. Carolina. And at this point, um, Sergeant Tebow's feeling a little burned out, a little unappreciated, thinking he might quit the police force. And so he's on a vacation. He's sort of bumming around. um, And uh, he meets up with some old buddies who are a little, little skeevy. And you don't know if he's going to be chucking it all for the big money of drug schemes or go back to being a police officer. So that's the tension in that book. The third one is called Deadly Mountains. And um, it follows uh, Tebow's mother was adopted as a young girl and she somehow becomes interested in, gee, where's my birth family? Whatever happened? How come I've never pursued it? And the reason this really became my favorite book to write was uh, at the time uh, I had been doing genealogy of my family and uh, as a first generation American, you know, everybody's back in the old country lost. Nobody's got the right stories. And um, somewhere along the line, (laughs) my mother had blurted out that uh, I had some cousins that I didn't know about. In other words, my aunt had had a child out of wedlock, which in the late 30s, early 40s was, you know, horrifying. And nobody talked about it. I didn't know this until I was well an adult. And all I could think of was, well, who are, who is this? Is it a, a male, a female? Where do you find them? And so I really jumped into looking and looking and you, you cannot find private adoptions in New York state. It, it's, uh, they're just about to, uh, I think, pull the veil off of that, but for years you could not. And um, this just kept you know, ruminating in my mind while I was putting together this, this novel. And um, I was one day just really got annoyed, <laughs> sat down and was just typing in websites and came up across adoption.com, which I've never heard of before. Mm-hmm. And I see my aunt's name there as the mother and it was the child looking for her mother. And it was like, whoa. And the woman had put it in. My cousin had put that entry in like four years previously. And, you know, you do this, you go on a search, and then you kind of forget what the website was. And, and that's what she had done. And she had a very unusual name, not my aunt, my cousin. And I just Googled it. And I found her. And I called her. And she went, yeah. I've been looking for 30 years. So anyway, we connected. So I found her and we found two more sisters. (laughs) And so anyway, that's why, and this was going on while I was writing the book. So it was, you know, very meaningful to me to have jumped into genealogy and family discovery and, you know, all the the push and pull that involved. So one cousin was, um, Holly is her name. The first one I contacted was very enthusiastic and yay. And, the second one was like, who are you? You know, why are you calling me? <laughs> so, you know, they grow up with different backgrounds and assumptions about who their family is uh, and what they are. And depending upon their uh, own upbringing with their um, adoptive family, you know, maybe think, oh, that, that wasn't a good mom to have. 
So a lot of that is incorporated into it. And then the fourth book of that series is called Deadly Dig. Um, and this was prompted by um, uh, my husband, Jonathan's an archaeologist, you know that. Mm -hmm. um, I was on a dig with him in the Philippines and people saw me writing and they said, why don't you write about an archaeological dig? Okay. So that's what, that's what it is. It, it starts off with that, but goes off into another direction. Um, and then I've just decided to write a cozy mystery, and I don't know why. So what's a cozy? It is a lot. Um, the murder usually happens off, off set, you know, mm -hmm. uh, off stage, so to speak. It's, it's like an Agatha Christie book. It's not gory. There's no you know, horrible kidnappings and, you know, animal, child molestation, anything like that. It's very, it's soft. They, now they call it clean. And uh, it takes place in 1931 in Western Massachusetts. Again, I, I like going into going back in time. And um, it, it's a nurse who happens to be um, get a temporary job uh, there and very colorful community with a lot of uh, gossips that get together for tea and hash out speculations of who got murdered, who killed the judge, that kind of a thing. So that was very fun to write. And that actually got um, some interest from a New York agent, the woman who represented the Queen's Gambit. Oh. She said, I love your book. I love your book. And so we had a really long talk about it. And the market is not really, I mean, that's not going to be a bestseller <laughs> mm -hmm. to, in a traditional publishing industry because after years of uh, the publishing industry favoring, you know, the uh, white male English teacher having an affair novel, now they've decided, oops, we forgot all about diversity. Now they're going way in the other direction and, you know, seeking out different voices. And I'm, you know, not on that either extreme of that spectrum. So there we are with what I'm working on. Well, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, first of all, I mean, you know, Agatha Christie's name came up and uh, and, and she also had an archaeological connection, of course. Yes, yes. yes. And um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, when you were, you know, when you were growing up or, you know, what, who was your mystery writer? Well, oh, well, Nancy Drew, of course, when I was yeah, a young yeah. kid, I, I, the, the town we grew up in, I lived in the city until I was nine, and then we moved out further to um, Nassau County, and the town we lived in was a mile square, <laughs> bordered by other towns, you know, and we had this tiny library, and it mostly uh, catered to bestsellers for adults, and, you know, they would come in each day and write their name on the list to get the next bestseller as it came due, but they had Wizard of Oz collection, which I absolutely loved, Nancy Drew collection, and all these collections. And I just, you know, blasted through them. That was my Friday afternoon thing. A friend of mine and I would go uh, to the library, pick out two or three books, and go home. And that's why I would stay up late Friday night <laughs> reading books while my father was turning the light off. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, I you know, the other thing I'm, I'm curious about with, with mysteries, I mean, there is, uh, a, you know, a mystery fan base that, you know, has certain demands. Yes. Um, you know, I mean. The tropes, I, they call them. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. And, and, you know, does that, I mean, do you, 
I mean, I, do you write to those tropes or, or, or do, do you know that there has to be a certain structure if I, you know, by this chapter, this needs to happen? I mean, I, just tell me a little bit more about how that, how that works. Yeah, it's very, it is very structured. And, and uh, I have a tendency to be structured. I, you know, if somebody said, sit down and write a novel, I, mean, I wouldn't know where to go with it. Yeah. Um, but this, you know, starts off with um, uh, a problem and in, in, an inciting incident of some sort um, that propels the action and by a certain page number. And this is usually for most fiction <clears throat> that is not just a, stream of consciousness, you know, by a certain page, you've got to have a moment where something big happens that either changes how the protagonist feels, or it, uh, it's got to go through a door, so to speak, into the next room and figure out what's going on. So yes, you do have to, if people want to read it and like it, you've got to meet the tropes. And I found this out, <laughs> one of the first versions of the Deadly Woods, <clears throat> it ended, uh, it's got to end uh, satisfyingly and happily for the protagonist. And it did not end happily for the protagonist. And I, I mean, that's the kind of ending I personally like to yeah. see in movies and books, you know, realism. And everyone, oh, no, that's terrible. How could you do that? Oh, sorry. So I did rewrite that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wrote, you know, I wrote a short story. And it was a uh, he was a Western lawman who was confronted with a mystery, and and I, I never had him solve it. And people read the short story and were mad at me. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, so, um, yeah. Not, not uh, only must solve the mystery, must punish the perpetrator. Exactly. I exactly. I didn't punish the perpetrator in one of the books, and people didn't like that either. But I said, like, well, yeah, that's how I mean, when I was in my twenties, I read uh, I read through the entire like Morse Inspector Morse. Oh yeah, yeah. And and what's interesting about those is that they 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 actually don't work as mystery novels in a lot of ways. I mean, they're they're it's mostly about him and his own psychological struggles, and he gets it wrong most of the time. And you know, um, but he's always uh, grumpy. <laughs> yeah, he's always grumpy and listening to opera, and that's what we like about him, you know. But uh, you know, so but it's funny. So you'll you'll encounter that once in a while, but mostly it's uh, you know, I mean, I had a friend that she used to write for uh, Silhouette Romance, but mm. <laughs> and they actually demand, okay, here's how this is going to work. Oh yeah, I'm you know? sure. Yeah, um, but that's a whole different kind of audience, you know. Yeah, but the the, the thing that's interesting is there's a book by. Um, uh, guy named Chris Fox, I think is his name. And it's called Right to Market. Mm -hmm. And it's for people who are struggling to get published or even get people to notice their books who think they're writing in one genre, but they're actually kind of drifting into another. And mm -hmm. he very explicitly <laughs> explains, if you write this kind of book, people expect that. And they want to look at this kind of a cover and they want to you know, have this happen and they don't want that to happen. And otherwise, they'll put it down. And that's so. If you want to be commercially successful or have people read your your books, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so it's a commercial. Well, well, the other the other thing that you've done is you have a a, 
a regular detective that goes through all these books. And I think that that's something that I think a lot of the audience demands too, right? Yes. Nowadays, this standalone book is, uh, no. People look and they see one book and, well, what if I don't like it? Or worse, what if I like it and there's no more to read about this? Mm-hmm. You know. So uh, the independent market, the indie group, some of these authors pump books out like every other month, which is amazing when you consider they not only have to write it, they have to have somebody else read it, correct it, copyright, copy, edit it, format it, get a cover, get, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah. a machine. It's pretty incredible. So I've jumped into that manufacturing <laughs> right now yeah. and, um, and advertising on Amazon. But you know, you asked about mystery writers. What I just started to do, and this is a rather insane thing, is once a week, I've been posting uh, a short biography of uh, a woman mystery writer. And I started off with Agatha Christie. And I yesterday just posted Sujata Massey, who wrote, um, uh, oh, gosh, Praveen is, I think, one of her uh, detectives in India. So she goes in for um, bicultural detectives. So that brings up a, a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, dramatic potential. Mm-hmm. And her previous one was a bicultural Japanese, Amer- uh, Japanese American, yes, detective. So, uh, and so I'm doing this once a week and I'm putting it on my website, which is andreasbooks.com. Yeah. If anyone wants to take a look uh, and I'm posting it on, many, many Facebook pages of people who write and read books. So if you pick it up, that'll be fun. Uh, So they're very short biographies, but it's just kind of to introduce people to um, one week I'll do a classic uh, writer like Christy. This uh, second week I'm doing somebody who may be less familiar, but popular. And the third week I'm doing uh, independent writers indie writers. And so I have a whole bunch of friends who are, would like to do that. So I'll be rotating them week by week for a whole year until I, my fingers fall off the bone. <laughs> yeah, well, <that's, laughs> I'm, I'm glad you have a plan. I do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it, what, what's interesting to me when you, you're, you're talking about Christy and, and, and having regular characters, I mean, of course, she had a stable of yeah, characters that would be in different series, um, and uh, I, I remember reading that at one point she just got sick of Hercule Poirot as a character, <laughs> and 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 I was thinking, yeah, actually he would be irritating to hang out with, you know. <laughs> um, but but it was also that that's in some ways a tribute to her talent that she made him well rounded enough that he was, you know. <laughs> um, uh, realistically irritating but interesting yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> i mean and i think of holmes the same way where you know you know watson's along for this adventure but you're like why are you still putting up with this guy you know <laughs> um you know so anyway um so i there was one other uh work that i i, I know that you know most of your your novels have take, taken place in uh, north carolina but you do have one sort of political satire I guess it would be one way to put it that takes place in Arizona, right? Yes. And it was originally called wastewater. Mm-hmm. And I love the cover. It showed this big pipe with 
a scorpion coming out. I don't know why scorpions don't live in wastewater pipes. But anyway, yes, I renamed it. This is horrible. Romance in the Desert Southwest. (laughs) Great. Romance novel. Why not? Yeah. Uh, and um, but I didn't change any of the interior. Yeah, so it, it's sort of like a political satire, contemporary. Um, uh, somebody again, an outsider, somebody from the DC um, political scene, gets comes out to uh, Tucson area, thinking she's going to help this guy that she just thinks is you know gorgeous and fantastic and wonderful, and who uh, is heading up a uh, an initiative drive but is clueless about how to do any of this. And the cast of characters are, you know, the usual goofballs that, that kind of glom onto political campaigns and you know, where have I speak? <laughs> yes. I, I think we know the same goofballs. Yeah. Yes. You know, the, the over eager, but uh, you know, incompetent individuals. And then yeah. there's always one office nerd who just can do everything but nobody likes that person. Yeah. And so that's what goes on there. And uh, the, no, none of the characters uh, represent real people from the Tucson political scene. Oh, of course not. Of course not. Um, yeah. Um, I that One of my frustrations has been that, at least in kind of TV and movies, how off they are and how campaigns actually work. You know, oh yeah, like I, you know, I mean, there, there, there was a, a few episodes of West Wing where they sh- actually delved into how the Bartlett campaign worked, and I'm like, well, so who's your field director? I mean, we don't know. This person <laughs> doesn't exist. They just managed to do this without this. And I think there was a movie, and I'm trying to remember what it was called, but it actually had both of Martin Sheen's kids in it. Um, you know. Uh, oh wow. Emilio and so you know it was quality, uh, but but it was and it was it, and it took place in a small town in New Jersey, and then there was this mayoral campaign that the was in the background of this whole thing, and they showed these mayoral campaign headquarters for this town that probably had maybe forty or fifty thousand people, and it was these ornate offices that they were working out of, and I'm I'm, I'm thinking Looks like I'm, a dermatologist office. <laughs> well, I remember one congressional campaign I was in. And we were in an old Wendy's. I mean, literally, <laughs> uh, you know, um, and, and so people have these weird notions of, of <laughs> you know, how political stuff actually works. And I kind of wish that more people who were uh, involved in actually involved in politics would would write for TV and movies and stuff and show how it actually operates. Um, of course, I think the trouble is, is that there's so much ego involved when they when they do that they end up writing something that makes them look really good somehow. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, I was in a political campaign right out of college um, to reelect a an anti-war uh, senator in New York State, <clears throat> Charles Goodell, whose son, Roger Goodell, is the base, whatever, baseball commissioner? Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. I'm terrible at sports. Anyway, um, he was a... Um, uh, Republican state senator, and when Robert Kennedy died, Rockefeller, who was the Republican governor, got to appoint a Republican, and they thought Charles Goodell would be a safe guy. And he got into office, and he just was really became an anti-war guy, and everybody was what? So when he ran for re-election, 
they had dual campaigns. They had the regular campaign, which was based in Manhattan with, you know, all these advertising dudes. And then they had the People for Goodell group, and I was part of that. And um, I was sent back to New Syracuse, and was like, no, <laughs> to um, head up the office there. And we had a storefront that some supporter had, you know, on the, the crappiest end of downtown where no one would come. And it just had like 25 telephones in it. Did we have 25 people to answer the phones or make phone calls? No, but we had the phones there. <laughs> Yeah, and in yeah. exchange for this guy renting it, he had his son basically trail me around all day, which was, what can I do now? What can I do now? That kind of a thing. I was like, I don't know. I'm trying to. So, and we had our campaign office in uh, Ithaca was a, a corner uh, ex pizza place downtown where the sign Piso Pizza was still on the wall. And, you know, yeah, exactly. You, nobody had campaign offices. People worked out of their homes, out of their cars, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, and then periodically somebody from New York would come up and, you know, hey, here's how you do it. You know, that's always the best. You know, you, you get the <laughs> you've been running things great. And then all of a sudden someone from, uh, you know, some national organization comes down right. and tell you how things really should work. You know, like, right, exactly. In the snappy much. suits and the language yeah. and, and and all. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it was really a blast and uh, uh, met a lot of people, had a lot of fun doing it and uh, came out of that. At least I was getting paid. I was one of the few people getting paid something like yeah. 80 bucks a week. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to have to wind things up here. Sure. But it was it was great to talk to you about uh, your books and, and give the website again just to. Sure. It's uh, www.andreas-books.com. Okay. And that's the one where they can read about the, uh, about the, your profile. Women of, of Mystery office. and yeah. see the book stuff. And well, hey, good to see you. Haven't seen much of anybody in the past yeah. year coming out well, of my cicada shell here. Okay. Thank you for listening. I'm Ted Brzezelski. Words and Work is a production of the Tucson chapter of the National Writers Union, and Downtown Radio. Uh, hope to see you next week. Thank you.